Tonight's study brings us to the subject of the assurance of grace and salvation, chapter 18 of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. The scripture is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, reading verses 9 through 12. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In verse 11, the apostle says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence of the full assurance of hope unto the end. In the book of Hebrews, we have set before us a series of warnings against apostasy. Not that in this book we are being taught that a child of God can fall away and lose his salvation. As we noted in our preceding study on the subject of the perseverance of the saints, the Bible teaches that once in grace, always in grace, and that it is impossible for a child of God ever to cease being a child of God. However, there is a difference between possession of eternal life and the profession of the name of Jesus in religion. So the apostle warns that there is a possibility to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit without being regenerated, wherein one, through religious experience, comes a long way in his knowledge of the Word of God, in his experience in the things of Christ, and in his enjoyment of spiritual matters. But if not being born of the Spirit of God, falls away and counts the blood of Jesus as of no avail. He commits the unpardonable sin wherein it is impossible to be renewed again unto repentance. But having set this warning before us, he says in verse 9, But we are persuaded better things of you. That is, that you are the children of God, that you will persevere in the faith, and so you are to go on in the second stage, and that is to the full assurance of grace and salvation. For he says in verse 11 that you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, implying here that the assurance of one's salvation is not that which automatically comes to one in the experience of conversion, but rather instead is something that comes by giving diligence. Now examining the subject matter of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, we may note first of all that there is a false or carnal assurance which may be entertained by unbelievers, wherein they actually 
through some religious experience, believe themselves to be saved, and so never have any doubts or fears as to their relationship with the Lord Jesus, only to die in their religious profession, to be sent into judgment and finally into hell. In the first part of section 1 of chapter 18 of the Confession, we read, Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. This is known as carnal security. A carnal security is never rooted and grounded in the work of God's grace in regeneration. Rather, it is rooted and grounded in what we would call either dead believism or else some religious experience or one's church membership or the fact of one's own good reputation and good works. I believe personally that in the great majority of churches today who hold to the doctrine of the security of the believer and the perseverance of the saints, in particular Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches, that there is a great experience of carnal assurance on the part of church members. The reason I say this is that salvation has been reduced uh, to the simple decision of the sinner, whereby he gives his mental consent uh, to certain propositions which are proposed as the gospel, and upon this consent joins the church is baptized, brought into the fellowship of the church uh, with the constant reminder that he is a child of God and cannot fall away. This is dead believism, a believism wherein a person says, yes, I believe that Jesus died according to the scriptures that he was buried. On the third day he was raised again according to the scriptures, so if I believe the gospel, then I am saved. But many men, without any consent whatsoever to the truths of the gospel, believe those statements, but will inform you that they're not saved. And then many people have equated this decision with walking a church aisle and joining the church with salvation, and so, because they are members of the church, believe that they never can be lost. For example, one of the members of this church was relating to me an experience that he had only this past weekend in uh, witnessing the gospel to a friend of his. Uh, this friend has no interest other than in the things of this world and so the pleasures of this present life. But his reply was that he had nothing to worry about, that he was all right because he tried to treat everyone fairly and honestly and Furthermore, he was a member of a Baptist church. Now that's carnal security. He's never been convicted in his heart that he was a lost sinner, and so he has never seen his need of God's grace through the blood of Christ for salvation. Yet he doesn't believe that he's lost. 
He doesn't believe that he's a sinner in the sight of God. He has a carnal security, and unless God awakens him, will die in that carnal security, perish, and go to hell. Other people believe because they've had some ecstatic religious experience in some emotional meeting where great pressure was exerted either in prayer or preaching, that they have been saved and they root and ground their salvation in that religious experience rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel. And as long as they can retain a memory of that experience, you cannot convince them that they're not the children of God. So they have a false assurance, and this will perish with them. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus spoke of in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, where in describing the last day and the time of judgment, uh, he warns that by men's fruits you shall know them. And then in verse 21 he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Now, many people say Lord to Christ, but the way it is used in the context here, Lord was equating Christ with Jehovah of the Old Testament. So not everyone who says that I am very God of very God, the Lord, Jehovah, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 22, he further says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, still acknowledging that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, all that we claim for him in his glory. Have we not prophesied in that by name, that is, ministered and taught and preached, and in thy name have cast out devils, even worked miracles like Judas Iscariot, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Not that you never knew me in a carnal sense. Not that you never knew me in the sense of giving your consent to the terms of the gospel in a dead decision. But I never knew you. You have never been the object of saving grace. So there is a carnal security. This is why every man should bring his heart under the searchlight of the Word of God to see whether he genuinely has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and gives evidence of being a new creation in Christ Jesus. In the second place, however, having pointed out that there is a false assurance entertained by unbelievers that we are to avoid, the confession of faith states that there is a true assurance of salvation which belongs to true believers who are not deceived, an assurance whereby we may know that we know Christ, whereby we may know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are saved, that we are of the body of God's elect, and so live in the joy and the light of that assurance. Continuing with section 1 of chapter 18 of the Philadelphia Confession, we read, Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, 
may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So a child of God can know that he is a child of God. There are many who believe that it is presumptuous to have assurance and to walk in the joy and the light of that assurance. As we shall see, it is called an infallible assurance, not in the sense that it is an assurance that has reached an infallible place beyond doubt, but because it is rooted and grounded in the infallible promises and infallible word and infallible work of an infallible God. But there is an experience in the believer's life, not a second work of grace, but an experience in a believer's life wherein diligence is given to the means God does give assurance, where that person lives beyond doubt as to his own salvation. Now this might be a gradual growth of confidence in one's own relationship to God, or it might be dramatic after a period of severe doubting and testing. For example, and I shall mention this briefly a little later, I was brought to this experience of assurance after a period of six months of doubting, totally doubting, uh, my relationship to God, my call into the ministry, wherein just suddenly and dramatically God brought me into an assurance that has never from that day been shaken. Now, I want you to note, first of all, one or two scriptures showing that there is an assurance of salvation. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 16, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit bears witness that we are the children of God. Then in 1 John, the book of Assurance, the Apostle John writes, first of all, in chapter 2 and verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In chapter 3 and verse 14, he further writes, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. So we have an assurance because we keep God's commandments and because we love the brethren. However, section 2 of the Confession of Faith gives us the basis of true assurance. In other words, true assurance is just not some blind confidence without any certain foundation. In section 2 we read, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion. In other words, it is not a persuasion brought about by men's logic, grounded upon a fallible hope such as religious experience, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit 
unto which promises are made, and on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. So we may note, first of all, that true assurance of salvation rests upon God's infallible word. Now he states, first of all, the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. But it is faith in the blood and righteousness of Christ that commences salvation. And then our assurance built upon that blood and righteousness is founded upon the infallible word of God. In other words, upon the infallible certainty of what God says rather than what man says. In Hebrews chapter 6, for example, in verses 17 and 18 we read, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that is, the saved ones, the immutability or unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, a strong assurance, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. So we have an assurance because if we search our experience out in the light of God's Word and find that the Word of God witnesses to us, uh, then we know that God cannot lie. Generally, a false assurance of salvation stands apart from the Word of God. A person with a carnal assurance will either know nothing about the Word of God and never take it into consideration, or else when they are confronted with the teachings of the Word of God, which are contrary to their own opinion and experience, they will refute the Scriptures, deny the Scriptures, and hang on to their own opinion. I've even had people to say, I don't care what the Bible teaches about this subject or that subject, I know what I believe. So that person has a carnal assurance because they are putting their own opinion above the Word of God and therefore they can never have assurance in the biblical sense because it is not based upon the teachings of Scripture. In the second place, the confession says that true assurance of salvation rests upon the graces in the believer's heart which are spoken of in the Word of God. In other words, there are certain graces that are imparted to a believer in regeneration, whereby a believer behaves himself in a certain way and disposition. And where there are those graces in exercise, uh, we can also have the assurance of salvation. Uh, there will be, of course, an unfaltering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For a child of God, no matter how deeply he doubts his own salvation, no matter how deeply into despair he is cast in doubting the work of grace in his own heart, will never, never, never doubt the merit and value of the Lord Jesus Christ 
as Savior. It will always be a doubting of one's self and of one's own salvation, but never a doubt of the Lord Jesus, who is the Savior. Furthermore, in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 3, we see that there is a disposition to keep the commandments of God. We know, we do know that we know him since we keep his commandments. In other words, there will be a love for the commandments of God. What God forbids, it will be our desire also to abstain from, and what God permits, it will be our desire to fulfill. And then, of course, in 3 and verse 14 of 1 John, uh, we read, there will be the grace of love for the brethren. So if there is no love for the brethren, no love for God's people, a person is not saved and has a false assurance. If a man, even if he cannot live up to the commandments of God, does not love those commandments, he is not a child of God, and so should have no assurance. Furthermore, true assurance rests upon the testimony of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. In Romans chapter 8, uh, we read where the Apostle Paul says that the Spirit himself, in verse uh, 16, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now that has been one of the most misunderstood, abused, and uh, misused verses of Scripture uh, that we can imagine. Now this testimony of the Holy Spirit does not mean that the Holy Spirit speaks audibly to the child of God and says to him, you are a Christian, have assurance. It does not even mean that the Holy Spirit impresses through visions or ecstatic experiences upon the mind and heart of an individual that he is a child of God. The way in which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears testimony with our spirit is through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit never bears testimony apart from the Word of God. He never bears testimony contrary to the Word of God. This is why it's absolutely foolish, and I know some who practice this, to pray for that which you know the Bible teaches otherwise, believing or stating that the Holy Spirit is leading you in a way when you know the Bible teaches contrary to the way that you're going. The Holy Spirit always testifies according to the Word of God. Therefore, the witness of the Spirit to the Spirit of man is his influence whereby he causes the heart of man to speak together with the Word of God. In other words, he brings the Word of God and the heart of man into agreement and bears witness with our spirit that our spirit is speaking the same thing that God's Word says with reference to salvation and ourselves. So the testimony is causing God and man to speak together. In other words, we can say, because of the witness of the Spirit to our spirits, what God says, for example, about the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation through him. Now, if I say that salvation is by my own good works plus the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit is not bearing witness. 
I'm bearing a false witness. But whenever my heart speaks to me that salvation is by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, then there is a speaking together. So we are able to take the Word of God and use divine logic. And if the Spirit of God bears witness to our hearts through the Word of God so that what we find in the Word of God is what we find in our hearts, then there is the witness. Let me give you an example of this divine logic. Turn to John chapter 3 and verse 36. John chapter 3 and verse 36. We read, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Now we stop right there. Now first of all, I see that the testimony of God through his word is, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. So God says to believe on his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the gospel, means that that person has everlasting life. Now my heart bears witness to that scripture and says, I have believed on the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Spirit bears witness with my heart by bringing forth the further testimony, causing me to speak the same thing with boldness that God has said, therefore I have everlasting life. That is not presumption. That is my spirit speaking together with God as to what God has said. God says, believe on the Son, you have everlasting life. I say, well, I believe on the Son, but I'm not sure that I have everlasting life then I am testing a reflection upon what God has said. If God says, believe on the Son, you have everlasting life, and I can truthfully say, I believe on the Son, then I can truthfully have a witness of the Scripture to my heart through the witness of the Spirit. Yes, then, if I believe on the Son, I have everlasting life. But let me point out to you uh, some difference that exists between true and false assurance. Well, in the very first place, in a false assurance, you can never with confidence take divine logic and apply it to yourself. Break down a scripture of this nature and come to the same conclusion as does God because the Spirit is not going to bear witness with your spirit. He's not going to say to you, you do have everlasting life because there's some doubt whether you believe the Son or not. But further, true assurance always produces an unfeigned humility. Wherever a person knows that he is a child of God, he does not have a, a, a hypocritical humility that exerts itself in a proud spirit. But false assurance always produces pride. A person will take great pride that he's not as other men, that he is this or that or the other. And so his pride will always be manifested in the fact that he'll always brag about something in relation to his salvation other than the, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 verse 14 said he would never glory in anything but the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. That's what he would brag about. 
but a person with false assurance will brag to you about how good he's been, about how he's trying to do his best, about how he's trying to live a religious life, about how he is a church member and what he does for the church and, and how the church just couldn't get along without him. There will always be a spirit of pride. Also, where there is a true assurance, there will be an increased diligence in the practice of holiness. Just because a person knows that he knows Christ does not mean that he ceases to desire to walk in the will of God and be like the Lord Jesus. However, a carnal assurance usually leads to a disposition wherein one is satisfied with mere... So we must never confuse one's assurance with one's security. For security is stable and unchangeable. But assurance can fluctuate with one's experience. For example, through a period of trial and testing, as I referred to earlier, the Lord hid his face from me as a trial in which he would not allow the Spirit to bear witness with my spirit that I was a child of God for about a period of six months. Now, this happened, I suppose, 10 or 12 years ago. During that time, it was a burden, as some of you know, for me to stand in this pulpit and preach. It was during that time that I could hardly read anything other than the Psalms themselves, for everything else was a burden to be read and uh, brought me under a deeper sense of condemnation and a sense of hypocrisy. No matter how intensely I prayed, during this time, fellowship meant nothing to me with other people, and I felt most comfortable being alone, but the heavens were brass and God would not reveal himself. But one day, walking from the church to the old pastorium, which was situated about 50 yards, I mean 25 or 30 yards from this auditorium, dramatically, the Lord Jesus Christ opened the heavens and revealed himself by speaking peace to my heart as I never before experienced and never since have lost. Wherein I was brought to this experience of assurance that has not fluctuated in those years. Now note what the confession says about this. How accurately did these men, as far back as 1669, sum up the experience of the child of God as taught in the Scriptures? We read in section 3, this infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith. In other words, it's not necessary to saving faith. A man can be saved without infallible assurance. But that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it, yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may without extraordinary revelation in the right use of means attain thereunto. And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, 
in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. The proper fruits of this assurance, so far is it from inclining men to looseness or causing them to live a careless life. Now you may see then that a person can have salvation but uh, be void of assurance. But the sure sign of a person genuinely being saved when he has no assurance of that salvation can be seen in the fact that he never loses his confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He may speak hard things about himself. He may talk of his own doubt, but he will never doubt or cast reflection upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He will always be absolutely confident that if he is saved or if he receives the assurance of salvation, it will be through the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in the gospel. Therefore, in spite of the absence of assurance, this person will never forsake the usage of divinely appointed means. This means he will not give up coming to church sitting under the gospel. But this often is a means whereby God drives people to sit with more attention under the gospel in anticipation that God will speak peace to their hearts. He will not give up prayer and diligently searching the word of God. So if there is the absence of assurance, we are exhorted to strive after it. Yet someone says if you get assurance, you will become loose in your life. But this is a contradiction of terms. For if assurance is the fruit of diligence, that is, diligently uh, striving to make our calling and election sure, it cannot lead to neglect. For a person cannot be diligent and neglectful at the same time. So we are to give diligence to make our calling and election sure, which guarantees that we can never become loose and indifferent in our Christian experience. So finally, uh, we may note that a Christian may have true assurance, but true assurance does not necessarily belong to the essence of faith. And further, that true assurance of believers may be shaken at times. In section 4 we read that there may be seasons wherein a child of God will doubt temporarily and then his assurance will return to it. We read true believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers' ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation which was my experience, and followed by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, 
this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which in the meantime they are preserved from utter despair. In other words, there are various causes why one may lose the assurance of salvation, but he cannot lose his salvation. During this time, however, because the seed of God remains in him, which can never fall away, and because of the operation of the Spirit of God, the person is never brought to utter despair so that he turns his back upon the gospel and the Lord. We have several cases in the Bible. Job is a case in hand who lost the assurance of his salvation because of sudden temptation and severe affliction. Peter lost his assurance because he failed to pray. And our Lord rebuked him and said, Could you not have watched and prayed for one hour? And then Peter, of course, went into temptation and cursed our Lord. Uh, as a result, David was confronted with sin which he committed and therefore lost his assurance for a period of one year. And Psalm 51 is a statement of his reinstatement into assurance of God's favor. We may conclude from the overall discussion that whether or not the believer has assurance, he does have security because of God's seed and operation in him. In time, in God's time, with the use of means, with the abandonment of known sin, he will be given his assurance of salvation and so restored to peace uh, with relationship to the enjoyment of God's favor. However, there must be constantly the warning that you make your calling and election sure because a carnal assurance only puts you to sleep in the arms of religion under the pretense of being a child of God that leads only to the destruction of your soul. For in carnal assurance, you refuse to be examined by the Word of God to see whether you be in the faith or not. And so concludes the discussion of the confession on the subject of assurance.